I still have hope. But hope, I have more than hope. I mean, I have evidence that it is possible. And that, I think, it's grounded hope. We can build the foundations for this new, very old, really, system. Prophecies have foretold, and wisdom keepers all know, that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world. In this podcast, we are on a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity, so we can emerge as leaders, creating a new story on Earth. I'm Lauren Walsh. And I'm Shayna Connors. With humble hearts and open minds, we will converse with spiritual teachers, historians, psychologists, revolutionaries, leaders, and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten. Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Time of the Feminine podcast. I am very excited and honored to bring you this interview today with Rianne Eisler, an Austrian-born American system scientist and author who writes about the effects of gender politics historically on society. She is most known for her 1987 book, The Chalice and the Blade, in which she coined the terms partnership and dominator. Eisler was born in Vienna in 1931 before her family fled from Nazi Germany in 1939 to Cuba. She and her parents lived in a slum in Havana for seven years, after which they immigrated to the United States, to Miami, New York, and Chicago before finally settling in LA. Eisler has a degree in sociology and law from the University of California. She is an attorney legal scholar, and author. She has published 13 books, including one memoir, and has published over 500 articles. She is a caretaker of peace and really a warrior and a leader and a pioneer of the feminine movement. Her book, The Chalice and the Blade, has sold over 500,000 copies around the world and is translated into 25 languages. She is the co-creator of the Center for Partnership Studies with her late husband, David Elliott Loy. She is doing such beautiful work in the world, and at the ripe age of 91 years old, if not 92, she continues to work for peace for harmony, and most importantly, for partnership. And so I hope you enjoy this interview with dear Rianne. She is a brilliant woman with so much wisdom to offer. So I hope you enjoy. So I just want to express my gratitude for you and the path that you carved for Lauren and I to be able to walk behind and just the wisdom and the beauty and the passion and the strength that it took 
to carry these messages of peace forward. And so it's just a huge honor to be with you and to be in your presence and to really see an elder that I just feel very connected to in this work. And so thank you so much. Well, thank you, my dear. And it is up to you and to Lauren and to all the young women and men and boys and girls and everybody in between to carry this forward. So I'm very happy to be with you here today. So the way that we typically like to start these interviews, the podcast is called The Time of the Feminine. And so we sometimes ask our guests what the time of the feminine means to them. Well, that's a wonderful question. It means many things to me. I woke up as if from a long drugged sleep to realize that that out of my many years of so-called higher education, there had been hardly anything by, about, or for people like me, women. Now, it's beginning to change, but at a glacial pace. So that was my awakening, so to speak. And it was a very important component of my research because my research heralds, in a sense, the time of the feminine. Most studies, all of our conventional categories, right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, capitalist, socialist, they either marginalize or just ignore nothing less really than the majority of humanity, women and children. It means that to me, a reclamation project, but it's a transformation project because with the feminine, And I think I here want to clarify that I believe that both women, men, and everybody in between has the capacity to express these genetic qualities that we have of caring, caregiving, nonviolence that are coded feminine in domination systems, right? But It means also, and this is critical for us, that unless we pay attention to gender, not as a, quote, women's issue, which is pretty big right there, but as a primary principle of social and economic and cultural organization, which we have not been taught to do, have we? Because we've all been taught, oh, this is a women's issue, but unless we pay attention to it as just what it is, and with it what I've called in my books the real wills of nations, the hidden system of gendered values, which devalue anything stereotypically in domination systems associated with women or the feminine, we cannot build. We just simply can't build that more caring, more sustainable, more equitable future. Thank you for that. I'd love to ask you a little bit about the framework of how 
domination systems began to be the predominant system, more or less. And the feminine intelligence, all qualities and values associated with the feminine became undervalued, belittled, oppressed. How did that origin begin? And where are we now? Okay, well, we are now in a time of reclamation and in a time, a tipping point. But the issue is which way will it tip? Because we have many trends and you and your podcasts and your courses, they're part of the movement towards the partnership side of the partnership domination social scale. And yes, we need new thinking. We need new categories. I think I'll backtrack a little, if I may, Lauren. What I saw in my research was that I could not answer the question of, I'm a Holocaust survivor, and I witnessed both enormous violence when on Christmas night, a group of Gestapo men came to our home and dragged my father away. But I also witnessed something that has had a profound impact on me. It's what I call spiritual courage. And it's not the courage as we had thought to think of it, you know, kill the dragon, kill the enemy, but the courage to stand up against injustice out of love. And my mother displayed that courage. She recognized one of the young Nazis as a young Austrian Nazi on Crystal Night, who had once been an errand boy for the family business. And she got mad at him. She said, "I, how dare you do this to this man who has been so kind to you? I want him back. Now, she could have been killed. Many Jewish people were killed that night. But by a miracle, she wasn't. Yes, by a miracle, she got my father's release. Some money did pass hands, of course. And by a miracle, we escaped. And these experiences led me to ask questions that I think we're all asking today. Does it have to be this way? When we have such an enormous capacity for caring, for consciousness, for creativity, you know, what I saw in my mother's behavior, why has there been so much insensitivity, cruelty, destructiveness? Is it the story, whether it's selfish genes or whether it's the original sin, it's the same story, isn't it? We're bad. I mean, they fight each other, but why is a mystery to me? Because both reinforce the same domination narrative, really, which is false. That yes, we're bad and we have to be rigidly controlled from the top, right? God-fearing is the epitome of that. So I saw right away that I couldn't answer that question through the conventional social categories, right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, capitalist, socialist, because there have been terrible regimes, regressive, repressive, violent, in every one of these categories. And so none of us tell us what we have to build in order to move to this more caring, more sensitive, more sustainable and equitable place. And so I developed new categories by observation, by research. And 
going to your question on prehistory now, what became clear is that for millennia in our prehistory, we humans actually, our cultural direction was more in the direction of the configuration of the partnership system. And yes, that gender partnership, gender equity was a very important pillar, a very important component of that partnership system. Now, why did it shift? There are many theories on that. And I subscribe, as you probably know, having read, I don't know which of my books you have read, probably Chalice, but also Sacred Pleasure. I go into answering that question, by the way. And it's a book that I wrote after Chalice, looking at both sexuality and spirituality and how they were transformed in, with the shift to domination and how in bits and pieces we're trying one step forward, two steps back, but we're sort of struggling with redefining them again in a more partnership-oriented way. But I subscribe to the theory that is now being actually verified, at least in Europe, by DNA, nothing less than DNA evidence of nomadic invasions from the Russian steppes, guns, Indo-European invasions that brought with them the domination system. And so in this theory, as I understand it, the Kurgans came in, brought these theories of worshiping a sky god, perhaps, and beginning to revere something outside of the earth-based system, which is reverent to the mother and to all life. And all of a sudden they brought with them war and this idea of ascension. And I'm curious about your thoughts of what happened during that time, because then we can start to see a lot of, I don't know, let's call it propaganda of what happened in terms of trying to shame the body, the feminine, what started with the extractive earth culture and all these domination systems that you talk about. So I'm curious about that transition. Well, uh, certainly there was violence. I mean, you have seen the disappearance practically of a lot of the DNA that was there before these invasions. But there was what you call propaganda. I called it remissing. And in The Chalice and the Blade and also in Sacred Pleasure, details, that process of remissing. Actually, the Kurgans originally seemed to have worshipped the lethal power of the blade, the weapon. And I think that in a sense, we the sky god became associated with them at a later stage. But there is evidence, and I think that's in sacred pleasure, that it isn't that it was only the earth goddess, that the earth goddess also involved the sun and the sky. But she always had a male consort, a male partner. And I think that this whole matriarchy-patriarchy argument is part of the fragmentation of our consciousness 
And part of the idea that somebody has to rule, whether it's mothers or fathers, it's still what I call a domination system. And so I had used the term partnership. Originally, I have, as part of my background, I'm an attorney, as well as a social scientist and a system scientist. My first job was for an offshoot of the RAND Corporation, the Systems Development And that was like an eye-opener, really. But also my training as an attorney, because people don't come to you and say, apply Section 1222 to my case of such and such a code. They tell you a story, I have this problem, and it's up to you to do the systems thinking, isn't it? To try to figure out what is the applicable law. But I think that what really happened is that we have become so conditioned by so many of the stories that we are taught that it seems that matriarchy ruled by mothers is really the alternative. And actually, I think the alternative is that both women and men rule together, that there are, however, values, that's the key, that are elevated are the so-called feminine values of caring, compassion, empathy, nonviolence, which if you look at where we are, because that's what you also asked me, where are we today? We see a struggle, don't we? That's not between right, left. I mean, look at North Korea, look at Putin, Look at Iran, it's not religious, secular. It's between those who want to push us back to a more rigid system of domination, which consists of domination starting in the family in childhood. Because we know from neuroscience now how critical, right, these first five years are to nothing less than the structure of our brains. And with it, how we think, how we feel, how we act, including how we vote. Do we vote for the strong man? Because that is the only security we've known. And we've been taught we have to love that strong man in the family. Look at the priorities, prisons, punitive, right? It goes with that kind of family. Gender, you know, the devaluation of the so-called feminine and of the work of caring, of women's work. And again, they're all interconnected. Economics, the reward system. I wrote a whole book on that, The Real Wealth of Nations, which I highly recommend for your courses. Because if we don't change the reward system, what we consider valuable, what we reward we're always on the margin and the system just keeps going. And yes, story, how's that? Please know, we loved that answer. And within it, there was like three different points that I wanted to elaborate on. And one of them that I'm in a pin for now that I want to come back to is the value system and how we need to shift that. That's a conversation Shana and I have often about valuing women's work. So I'd love to pin that and come back. But right now, my heart 
is really curious for my own transformation and for the transformation of women listening. I'm curious about how, as a systems thinker, someone who's done so much research and was able to see above the illusions and how everything wove together to arrive where we are, and you being someone who's had direct experience of that, what has your healing journey been like? And how has all of this knowledge that you've attained transformed your inner reality and experience? Wow. (laughs) Well, look, I've always been an outsider. And I think that made it possible, I mean, upon the reflection, to step outside the conventional categories, the conventional thinking. I learned very early on Vienna, Cuba, I grew up in Havana in the industrial slums of Havana, the United States, that things that are just considered given, just the way things are, they're not the same everywhere. So that was a very important part of my journey. And certainly waking up to feminism, that was also a very important part of my journey. And I, it's, we really need to talk of feminisms because there are many, many different varieties. And my variety is an inclusive one. But I also feel that feminism, feminism semantically is exclusionary. And there are two basic forms of humanity. There there are people in between, of course. But and, and that, by the way, the fluidity of gender that is being recognized is a partnership trend. But it can also be a distraction. I think that we're human beings, period. And that's all. And and all of these labels Identity politics has really bitten us big time because it was appropriated by those whose identity is in-group versus out-group thinking and acting. And oh boy, it, it's been a disaster for us for moving forward, but that's an aside. Anyway, so you asked me about my own journey. And I'm going to fast forward because I had the enormous luck and now the enormous grief of meeting David Lloyd, my my partner, for 45 years. And I start crying. And he died. He had a good, good run. I mean, he was in his 90s, and but he died and I'm left, bereft, really. But I learned in those years, and yes, we fought and we had disagreements, but we had enormous love, enormous love. And our, well, as I said, the price of that, of course, is enormous grief. But it's okay because there's also the gratitude. I mean, I'm very grateful for those years, but I learned during those years that partnership is possible. Once we step out of these rigid gender stereotypes, of these rigid gender roles, and a lot of people are experimenting with that today, aren't they? And finding, my gosh, everything is better. 
you know, I mean, uh, life, sex, uh, everything is better when you're partners than when one is subservient and says yes and amen. And of course, women become very manipulative because that's what oppressed groups do, learn to be. And it's a mess for both. I mean, the domination systems have been a mess for men. Well, first of all, just because some guy on top, like Putin now, wants more real estate, they have to give their lives, right? I mean, that's pretty bizarre when you really think about what is happening here. But people don't yet. And I think that we are at a time when we have to think differently and we need these new categories and we need to have configurations in which childhood and gender and a new kind of economics, what I call a caring economics of partnerism. And yes, debunking the old stories. I mean, neuroscience shows that the pleasure centers of our brains actually light up more when we share and care than when we win and dominate. We've been told so many false stories because they maintain and impose domination systems. We're back to your question again, the remissing, the propaganda. And it's a process. I'm sorry about your loss. It's a beautiful connection that you two had. And I just want to say that. So thank you for sharing that here. And I've thought a lot about this economic system that you're mentioning that values care. When I think about, I grew up in the finance world. That's kind of where I started working and the education that I got once I graduated from college. And the thing that I started to see very quickly was that the way our economic model is set up is based on this idea of growth and that the values of our economic system are not actually tied to human values like well-being, health, happiness, prospering of peoples. And so coming across your work has been really touching for me because it makes me feel like I'm not so much of an outsider. I'm just, you know, like, am I over here just feeling like this whole system set up incorrectly? And so I would love to hear about the value system that you propose for a new economic model. And also another thing I've thought a lot about that you've done a lot of work and researching is around how women's work is unpaid. Caregiving roles are unpaid. And in our value system, how that leads women to believe that they're not of value because we're not included. And so perhaps if you can elaborate there. Sure. Well, let's start with this argument between now going between capitalism and socialism. And it's a distraction. Because consider that both capitalism and socialism came out of the 1700s and 1800s. And we're now in the 21st century post-industrial era. They came out of very early industrial days when the Industrial Revolution was just getting into full swing. It's been going on for a long time. So for both Smith and for Marx, nature was just there to be exploited. There's nothing 
in either capitalist or socialist theory about caring for our natural life support systems. Number two was then the work of caring for people, children, the elderly, the sick, everybody, was to be done for free by a woman in a male-controlled household. So much so that even as late as when Marx wrote, in most jurisdictions, a wife could not sue for injuries negligently inflicted on her. Only her husband could for loss of her services. Think about that for a moment. This is why this is so multidisciplinary, this research, because the way that the universities are set up right now, so siloed, it's almost impossible to connect the dots, isn't it? And we have to connect the dots. It's very easy under the current system. So both capitalism and socialism perpetuate this gendered system of values where there's always money for prisons. Well, who's that? That's the punitive millhead of household. Wait till your father gets home, right? Or for weapons, for wars, so the hero as killer, the hero as epical, whatever. But somehow there isn't enough money for caring for children, for paid parental leave for both women and men, for early childhood education that's accessible. Even though we know from neuroscience that whether or not we have this high quality human capital that economists like to talk about as being indispensable, the most important capital for a post-industrial era, right? Well, whether or not we have these resilient, caring, capable people who can really be creative rather than just following orders or giving orders, largely hinges on the quality of care and education they children receive in their first five years. This women's work still, I mean, it was, and we see trends. I mean, Biden has tried now twice, really, to introduce these things like paid parental leave, like quality early childhood education. And what has the Democratic Party done? It has, quote, compromised with the regressives by throwing women and children under the bus because we haven't had the consciousness of connecting the dots. How are you going to have a more prosperous society? Just putting caring and economics in the same sentence was, oh my God, what are you doing? And now it's part of the conversation, right? But it's the line between co-option and transformation is a thin one. And so it's been very much co-opted to just mean direct care. And that's not what caring economics is about only. Certainly it is about that. But it's also social justice work. I mean, that's caring work. That ought to be supported. It's a whole, it's informed by the value of the economic value of caring for people starting at birth and caring for a natural life support system because consider that both capitalism and socialism are based, as it's still being taught in economic schools to this day, on a very limited 
economic map that does not include the three life-supporting sectors, the natural economy, the volunteer community economy, and the household economy. And hence, if it's not in the market, and in the market, care work is so devalued. And really, think about it. We demand that plumbers be trained, but we don't demand that child care workers be trained. I mean, the whole thing is reality student, I said, that it's our job to stand reality right side up. Mm. I love that. I love that metaphor. I feel like all the women who are on this ride with us, listening to this podcast, taking our courses, we're in this unlearning and deconditioning of the dogma and frankly, indoctrination of these value systems within us. And it's often a painful journey to see and then to learn. It can be frustrating to know what we've adopted and to know and catch ourselves seeing through a lens that we no longer believe in, but it's so habitual. And I remember, I'm going to tell a little story as an antidote. I remember a man who I was dating we didn't last long after this conversation, mind you. He really adamantly was so convinced that women should not be paid what men are paid because women have the potential of getting pregnant and that's not good for business. And this is a man that meditates. This is a man that is like, quote unquote, spiritual and open-minded and like social justice oriented, but still he could not for the life of him get around that framework that was instilled into him. And moments like that, and I'm sure for you, Rain, and for different listeners, when you're feeling like the world is making progress and then you come into contact with something that is just no matter what you say it's like you're speaking a foreign language people just cannot understand the paradigm from which you're speaking from it's enraging and i have a question for you based on all of your pioneer work i mean you are a pioneer and we're learning from you and we're picking up the torch and we have to eat more we have it easier because you've written the books and many women like you and we have it, we're better off because of it. It's easier for us to understand and it's helpful for us to do the work because we also have community around doing the work now. When I imagine back in the day, it was harder to find. And my question to you is, with all that you've done and with all that you're seeing, do you have hope that we are going to regenerate this together. All of us are going to evolve generation by generation and regenerate. Or do you fear or see that there will need to be more of a collapse and a massive humbling before the awakening happens in this regard? I don't know. I really don't know what... It, of course, I still have hope. But hope, I have more than hope. I mean, I have evidence that it is possible. And that, I think, it's grounded hope. We can build the foundations for this new, very old, really, system. There are some people doing a film about my life and my work, and they 
interviewed Ian Hodder, who is one of the ar- archaeologists uh, excavating Chatanhuyak, which I'm sure you're acquainted with from your research. And he said in the interview, it was a Gailanic society, you know, partnership society. And he wrote an article for the Scientific American saying that there's really no evidence of that being born female or male had any impact on whether you thrived or didn't thrive in this society. And consider this was a society where there are no signs of destruction through warfare for 1,000 years and where the size of the houses, the grave goods, don't show any massive inequalities, certainly not between women and men, but also generally. So it's the configuration. We know that the configuration works, and we know that, for example, Northern European nations that have moved more to the partnership side of Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, they invariably rank high in the world, not only in the world economic global competitiveness reports, but in the world happiness reports. So this configuration is good for people and good for nature. But uh, if you are brought up, and this is really, I highly recommend that you read my latest book, which is called Nurturing Our Humanity, came out with Oxford University Press in 2019. And the subtitle is How Domination and Partnership Shape Our Brains, Lives, and Future. And it ends with four cornerstones that are foundational. And I've already alluded to them, childhood and family, ignored in the conventional or marginalized, gender, certainly marginalized still in the conventional conversation. It's a Me Too issue or it's a women's issue. No, it is a key social, economic, and cultural organizing principle. Economics, I mean, capitalism and socialism, frankly, are antiquated operating systems. But beyond that, they perpetuate this system of gendered values by calling the work of caring for people outside of the market just reproductive rather than productive. I mean, and that's still being taught today in in our schools, in our business schools, in our economic schools. It's got to change. And the only way it changes is people like you and your listeners are getting in there and showing what the problem is and really drawing and building on the work that I've already done. Because, and the work of many feminists, not all. There was a, there are some feminist economists who are squarely in the domination paradigm because that's what they were told. But we can make change, but it has to be foundational and it has to include focusing on these four cornerstones and seeing how they're all interconnected. 
And those four cornerstones are the ones that represent the partnership society. Well, the four cornerstones are essential for moving from domination to partnership. They are the cornerstones for domination societies. I mean, think about it for a moment. Putin, who we all know he invaded Ireland, he invaded Ukraine. He, in 2018, substantially lowered the penalty for family violence. So that today in Russia, if you hurt or kill a child or a woman or a man in the family, it's less than if you hurt or kill a stranger. Why? Because like the people who, like Iran, Khomeini's and successors in Iran, like Hitler in Nazi Germany, it isn't a question of left, right, or religious, secular, or Eastern, Western, or Northern, Southern. They recognize that a rigidly male-dominated, highly punitive, authoritarian family is foundational to a, yes, a rigidly male-dominated, authoritarian, highly punitive, violent state. It is that simple. And yet, while parental control has become a big issue, right, for those in the United States pushing us back, it isn't a big issue to spread partnership parenting. We have on our website, downloadable for free, a caring and connected parenting guide available in both English and in Spanish. really is based on neuroscience, it's nonviolent, it is endorsed by leading psychologists and pediatricians and Nobel Peace Prize winners, right? Because they recognize through through this research the connection. But we're not used to making these connections and we have to start making them. So to answer your question, yes, I have grounded hope that we can do it, but it depends on what people do. And we need more funding now for the Center for Partnership Systems to really aim this new worldview at policymakers, at change makers on the ground, both business and government policymakers, decision makers, and also frankly, social activists who are doing the work, but it's all disconnected. And actually, it's all connected, whether it's the environmental movement, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement, whether it's the women's movement. They're all challenging traditions of domination, you know? I mean, think about that. But we have not been taught to think of it that way, have we? And so can you explain what the keystone of the partnership society is? Yes. And if you go to uh, our website, which is centerforpartnership.org, and if you go to Media Kit, you'll find some graphics there that really explain the two very different configurations. The domination configuration consists of four key elements. Yes. And so does the partnership configuration. 
And it's always a matter of degree, okay? It's the partnership, domination, social scale. One is family and childhood. So in that sense, the first cornerstone is very much part of that because we are used to thinking of only, if you think of the modern progressive movements, the majority of them have focused on dismantling the top of the domination pyramid, right? And they've really left these foundations leading to domination. And so we've seen regression after regression, whether it was Nazi Germany, whether it's Orbach, whether it's Trump, whether it's Putin, it, it doesn't matter, okay? They're always based on that, connecting the dots. So it's not only in the politics and economics system that you have top down. I mean, it's, it's not a question of capitalism. It's a question of domination economics, by the way. Whether it was an Arab sheik or an ancient Chinese emperor or a feudal lord, doesn't matter. Or trickle-down economics. It's always top-down. So that's the first component. But it includes family. Second is gender. And we've already spent a lot of time talking about that. But consider for a moment, if children grow up in families where the male form, because there are only two basic forms of humanity, where the male form is ranked over the female form, what you have is a template for equating difference, whether it's racial, whether it's ethnic, whether it's religious, in-group versus out-group thinking, equating that with either dominating or being dominated, right? With either serving or being served, right? And yes, with either superior or inferior. So this whole thing, I think it's very important to have a trans movement and to have people support it. But it is, it can become a distraction from the fact that there are these two basic forms and that they are, have been rigid gender stereotypes based on these two basic forms have been absolutely central to domination systems. So consider how much of a priority it is for those pushing us back to return to that kind of arrangement. Okay, we have to learn from observing the people who are trying to push us back. The third cornerstone is to maintain, and this is built into all of the, the four cornerstones, but the third element that is very different in partnership and domination systems is the degree of abuse and violence. It has to be built into domination systems to maintain these top-down rankings, whether it's man over man over woman, race over race, religion over religion, it doesn't matter. And the fourth is story and language. So there is a correspondence with the four cornerstones, which are cornerstones for either domination or partnership systems, don't address violence except it's built in. A highly punitive family is a violent family, whether it's emotionally violent or physically violent, it's a violent family. And the good news is how much talk there is today about trauma, right? 
the ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences studies, which are, by the way, and trauma is discussed also, of course, in Nurturing Our Humanity, which I think you'll both find of enormous help. The system really in equating masculinity with domination and violence, real masculinity, right, is intrinsically violent and abusive. So I think that it's really not that complicated. It's once you get used to thinking this way, everything falls into place and it's no longer random. So I want to ask you about about worth, a woman's worth, how as women we have perhaps internalized all of these things we're talking about, these domination cultures, and we felt the punitiveness inside of ourselves. And this work that we're doing, Lauren and I at Global Sisterhood, is really around this. How do we help women remember who they are outside of these systems so that they can build, so that they do feel empowered to create new ways so they can birth the new future that can be available for us if we're responsive and open and listening. And so I'm curious about your perspective about how as women we can really embody this sense of worth and not get discouraged. And this is for me too, how to not get discouraged when you feel like you're up against a ginormous monster. Well, I wrote a book called The Power of Partnership, and it's a how-to book. And I highly recommend it. It looks at seven relationships, and you might want to structure a course around it. It starts with how we relate to ourselves, which is what you're talking about, that voice. You're not thin enough. You're not a good enough mother. You're blah, 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 right? All of these things are the domination voices, and it isn't our parents. I mean, they're just passing it on. They were taught that it's the system that has to be changed. It's the value system. So this is a very much how we have to start early. We can change. For example, I know transformation is possible from my own life. I mean, when I graduated law school, I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. I felt that was, and I got a job with a part-time job with an entertainment, Beverly Hills entertainment law firm. And I thought it would be entertaining and it wasn't actually, but I changed. And I remember one day uh, the head of the firm called me into his office to compliment me on something. And he said, you don't see Think like a woman, right? And he meant it as a compliment. And you know what's worse? I took it as a compliment. I mean, I took this insult as a compliment. So I know that transformation is possible. And I think that it's a painful process. I spent some time being very angry. And then I got over that. My children sort of said to me, you're being very rude, mom. And I realized I was. If people called me honey, I'd go, I'm not your honey. And I stopped being angry and I started to really think of what do we need to do to build. See, so much of the focus today is on deconstruction and disruption. And that's fine. 
but we have to focus on reconstruction. And that's what this work is really about. And it, as Archbishop Desmond Tutu wrote about the real wealth of nations, he said the book is a template for the better world we have been so urgently seeking. That's what we need. So one of the ways of empowering women is not just to say, oh, yes, the rules of the game, and I've internalized all this garbage and blah, blah, blah. Because in the 60s, we really mistook rebellion for reconstruction. And I worry about people doing that again with all of this emphasis on disruption. We have to show that we can build something better. And that's what this work is about. I love your emphasis on partnership. It feels so simple, yet actually so profound. And it's your story of you and your beloved and how you learned that true partnership is possible really touches me. I'm getting married in two weeks <laughs> and I'm so amazed by how much I heal with him. And not only that, I'm realizing how when I open my heart and I open myself to be in partnership with so many more people to really claim that I belong and we belong together and to learn how to navigate through very different lenses of seeing things. I'm seeing how that right there is the transformation of all of the indoctrination that we're speaking about. And so I want to focus before we ask your last qu- the last question, I want to bring an emphasis back on your organization Center for Partnership Systems because you mentioned you need funding. And I just want to call out to the universe right now and have you share a little bit about that to the people who are listening. And I'm just affirming that somebody listening to this is going to be like, I'm investing in this. And so tell us a little bit about it. Well, thank you. That's very good. And I would be happy to do We have a wonderful new CEO, Eli Ingram, and she is really guiding us to not only provide the frame, which is essential, by the way, because as I said, the people pushing us back have a very coherent frame. It connects the dots between the family and childhood and gender and politics and economics. And we need to do the same. And But before I go into that, I just want to say that By partnership, I don't just mean working together, because consider that cartels work together, gangs work together, monopolies work together. Is it this in-group versus out-group, or is it working together for the common good? But let me go back to the center now, but I did want to make that point, because I think it's very easy hearing the term and I've coined the term partnership. It wasn't an equivalent in the general culture for working together. And it was more like, a, I was thinking of a business partnership, where at least in theory, there is mutual accountability, mutual respect, mutual profit. Okay, so having said this, the center certainly has this new frame, but we also 
have tons of resources. We have, as I mentioned earlier, the Caring and Connected Parenting Guide. We have a checklist now, which we got through a grant from the Ford Foundation, and we developed a technology toolkit to really see how are we programming technology. Are we maintaining domination systems consciously? And also providing the new frame. We have been working in 2014. We launched the first alternative to both GDP and these other so-called GDP alternatives, social wealth economic indicators, showing the economic value of caring for people starting at birth and caring for our natural life support systems. And unlike most of the GDP alternatives, which are just a snapshot of what is, uh, this is both outputs and inputs showing what kind of inputs make for better outputs. Investments in childcare, investments, you see what I'm saying? So we have a ton of projects but we really need money to really amplify this. We're working with somebody to develop modules for history courses on this new theoretical framework. How do we study history and what stories make sense? And what is history? I mean, this whole realm of prehistory, where do you read about Chakal Huyak? Where do you read? about foraging societies, they're beginning to be a few books that are coming out, but they don't have a coherent analytical lens, a frame. And that is, so please, if people who can write huge checks, or if you want to write little checks, you can go to the website, centerforpartnership.org, and you can donate. And we need funding to, because it is essential. Now is the time for this. You both understand that, that we are at a tipping point. And as Einstein said, you cannot solve problems with the same thinking that created them. We need new language. So much, I mean, I was reading killer performance. What kind of language is that? It's equating killer with something good. We I've coined some words and some coined words and phrases like killing two words with one stone. I mean, that's the dominator language. Catching two words with one egg. That's the partnership. In. I changed that to planting two trees with one seed. I love that too. So, <laughs> I mean, but that, these are the small things and the big things. But in order to change it, we need the frame. We need to understand what are the cornerstones that the people who are pushing us back are set on changing the norms for family, for childhood. People who voted for Trump, they one thing the study showed, one thing they had in common was a horror also of women who assert themselves, right? Who go outside of that stereotype. Mm-hmm. Another thing they had in common. Uh, is that they were more interested in parenting for conformity 
rather than for curiosity, questioning, etc. These things all make sense, don't they? But not until you have a frame to put it into. So please, if you happen to know some of the people, some of these very wealthy women, well, you know who they are, contact them because that's what we need. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And I want to just take a moment to everyone listening. We need to support each other and we need to support brilliant minds. And this woman has put in, how many years of work have you put into studying all these systems? Oh my God. Well, the chalice and the blade came out in 86 and it took me 10 years. to When I was born, basically. Yeah. (laughs) It took me before that 10 years to get all the evidence together, which was a fascinating project, I have to tell you. It was, people always tell me that they read my work and it's full of aha moments. Well, doing the research was full of, oh, aha. So that's why this happened. I mean, why did Eve ask advice from a serpent? We don't usually do that, right? But if you understand that the serpent was not only a symbol of regeneration of the cycles of life and death and rebirth, but that the serpent was also a symbol of oracular prophecy. Remember the Oracle of Delphi? Yes. Even in historic times. So no wonder she would ask advice from a snake. But the rest of the story is a story of remissing to fit the partnership system. Don't think for yourself. Don't you dare think except what I tell you to think. And this is why I'm calling out to everyone. Let's help these new systems and all of this work of this wonderful woman be brought into a practical organization where there can be force and energy behind it so that we can retell the stories of history and create new frameworks and really all learn how to truly work in harmony for the common good. So if you know someone, pass this episode along. Thank you. So Rain. I don't know how you pray or how you connect with spirituality, but we have a question that we ask every single guest of ours at the end of every episode. We invite each guest to tune in to the cosmic mother, the great mother, earth and sun and sky and stars. And through tuning in with her, opening yourself to be a channel of a message for all of us to end on. Would you do that for us? I can tell you what spirituality means to me, and it means putting love into action. Mm. I'm very action-oriented in my spirituality, and I'm actually working with a group of spiritually inclined evolutionary leaders and doing interviews with them. But I just think that all of us have the divine or what we have been taught is the divine. It isn't some punitive, personal, male, bearded God. Or even it's within us. And the ancient wisdoms, I had one project which you made me think about, which is to sort the chat from the brain. 
in the world's spiritual scriptures. Because at the core of that are so-called feminine teachings. Think about it. Caring, compassion, empathy. But then there is this overlay. It's like an old painting, isn't it? That's been painted over in the course of domination-oriented history. And if we and those are the teachings that are being used against us. And we need to show that these are not the true teachings, that these came. So that's the project that's very dear to my heart because. I'm interested in what can we do to make the change. And that's, I think we're all agents of cultural transformation from domination to partnership. Thank you so much for being here on the Time of the Feminine podcast. It's such a beautiful moment for me to get to share this experience with you and with Lauren and I very much hope I can carry on the torch. And I know Lauren feels the same way to really bring this work to more people and these messages to the hearts of humanity. I would love to introduce our new sponsor, goddesswell.co. Goddesswell creates the highest quality of women's products for your highest self specifically formulated by women for women to complement our inherent self-healing power, specifically focusing on PMS, menopause, hormone and moon support and urinary tract health. So what I love about this company is the intentionality within the medicine and the high, high quality of CBD that's within each capsule. So there's various lines. There's the harmony line for harmony and mood. There's the radiance line for PMS and menopause relief. There's the serenity line for UTI relief. And each capsule has two times more CBD than in any other capsule on the market, plus high quality essential oils to target and support relieving all of these various women's hormonal and sexual health issues. So for me, every day I take the harmony pill for mood and hormone aid and I say a little prayer and I connect with the medicine and I connect with the aliveness of the essential oils and I ask for help with what I'm going through right now in my woman's health journey and I feel like I'm giving myself the care and the attention I need. So what's so cool about Goddess Well and Marcella, the owner's connection with Global Sisterhood, is she's a Global Sisterhood facilitator herself, and she has made it available for the Global Sisterhood community to buy one product and get one free using the code SISTERHOOD. That means we get to buy one for ourselves, and we get to buy one with the condition of giving it to a sister, to spread the love, to spread the health, and to deepen our circle of women who are healing ourselves and transforming the world. So go to goddesswell.co, use the code sisterhood and buy one and get one free to give to a friend. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Time of the Feminine podcast. It is such an honor every time to be able to host these conversations and to share the stories of the beautiful people we get the opportunity to interview. And so if you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and leave us a review. You can do so on Apple Podcasts and write a nice note 
or you can do so on Spotify by leaving stars. We so appreciate every single one of you that's taken the effort to go out and to share with others and with our community about how this podcast has touched you. It really means so much to us since for us, this is a labor of love. And so thank you for giving back in that way.